Okay, in this podcast, I'm going to discuss two more exemplars that relate to the concept of mobility, and that's spina bifida and spinal cord injury. So, of course, these are two fitting um, exemplars to go, to, to go together because they both relate to the spine. Um, so when we think about spina bifida, some of the major things that are important to understand is there's all different types of spina bifida, different severities. Um, I want you to know the two extremes. So a patient could present with spina bifida occulta, and this is the one that has the least complications. Sometimes these patients are born and nobody even knows anything is wrong, and then they might have some minor complications as they start to grow and like learn how to um, try to go to the bathroom on their own, and then we might know that they have some bowel or bladder issues. Um, so spina bifida occulta is the least severe. And then the other end of the spectrum, the worst type of spina bifida is myelomeningocele. So with myelomeningocele, they actually have an open area on the spine. Uh, so this is very noticeable. So with occulta, it's think about your fecal occult blood test that, or the fecal occult stool test. Um, and it's looking for hidden blood in the stool. So when you see the word spina bifida occulta, it's hidden. There's, it's closed. There's nothing really obviously um, wrong with the spine. Now with spina bifida myelomeningocele, this is obvious. Their spine has actually grown in a way um, where they have this sac that lays on the exterior um, and so it's open. So that is very fragile, as you can imagine, and it's going to need pretty immediate um, attention. In fact, I'll sh um, show you a really cool picture because since technology has advanced, um, they are often doing um, surgery in utero because we can tell on ultrasounds that a baby has this myelomeningocele, and there are doctors that have been trained to fix that um, to some degree while baby is still in utero. Um, so that's pretty, pretty fascinating. Um, but if not, if, um, baby is born with it, then you can expect that baby will go to surgery shortly, like within the, in, within the next day or so. So if you think about the fact that their spinal cord has not grown in the way that it should, then there could be a lot of complications. And this is it's lower level, it's always on that kind of sacral area. So most of the complications we see revolve around walking. They have weakness, or maybe they can't walk at all without you know, some assistance. Um, and then the bowel and bladder issues are the other big thing that we see with spina bifida. Um, so generally, um, like I said, they could be, um, surgery could be done in utero if it needs to be, or once they're born, especially if they have the myelomeningocele, which is that sac that's laying on the exterior of the spine, there's going to be a high risk of infection. Um, as the nurse, it'll be my responsibility to keep that area moist and clean um, until they're able to get into surgery and fix it. You're not allowed to give rectal temperatures to infants who are born with a myelomeningocele. Um, you want to keep them in their incubator until closure. Uh, watch for positioning. Um, usually they're, they're, they're going to have to lay on their belly when they have that myelomeningocele because we can't put pressure, a lot of pressure on that. Um, you know, and just really watching it closely, keeping it moist. Um, as far as how can I avoid spina bifida? 
really we want to teach moms to take in that folic acid during childbearing years or childbearing um, ages. So um, if, you know, when, whenever mom is at risk for, a woman is at risk for getting pregnant, whether it's planned or unplanned, we suggest that they take that folic acid supplement because folic acid is what is needed to help the spinal column grow and form properly. Um, so that's a pretty big supplement and very important. Um, as someone grows when they have spina bifida, like I said, they could have mobility complications. Um, if they're having mobility complications, they remember the whole list of things that can go wrong with mobility. Um, you know, that does include bowel and bladder issues. Um, also, skin problems are a big thing that we watch out for. These patients may need to wear some type of orthotics or devices to help them with walking. We might have to do some range of motion with them, depending on the severity of their spina bifida. And then this is will kind of continue throughout the rest of their years, you know, watching for these mobility issues, um, bowel and bladder issues. If there's incontinence, we could do bowel and bladder programs to help with that. And then the psychosocial issues that can go along with that um, because of their limited or lack of mobility and with having incontinence all through your life that could pose some psychosocial issues that we would want to address. These patients do have a normal intelligence. Um, so there's nothing wrong with the brain. It's just that lower part of the body where that spine did not form correctly. Um, some big potential complications from spina bifida. Patients might get hydrocephalus. Um, so they might get fluid around the brain from some spinal complications. And we would notice that on infants because we might palpate and feel a bulging fontanelle. And we would wanna watch for signs of increasing pressure because of that fluid on the brain. Things like drowsiness, level of consciousness, nausea, they might become irritable. Um, other complications, we might see something called a Chiari II development. Um, this is a structural defect in the base of the skull. So that's a complication that could come along with spina bifida. Scoliosis, um, like I said, bowel and bladder problems. Um, and then another thing is a lot of times we see a latex allergy with these patients because they do have bowel and bladder problems, um, which forces them as they get older to uh, be straight cathed and because of that incontinence. And we can teach them to do that on their own, but because that material is often made of latex, uh, with these patients being in and out of the hospital a lot, being exposed to the latex, they often develop a sensitivity to it because of that excess exposure. And then another complication we could see associated with spina bifida is epilepsy, and that's a seizure dis disorder. So you might have a patient who has to be on some anti-seizure medication uh, related to that complication. So because this happens, you know, right when the patient is born and something they deal with all their life, we just want to consider like caring for the hospitalized child. Um, we could see possible regression, regression, meaning um, a child is doing something that they used to do um, when they were younger and then they didn't do it for a while. Now they're doing it again. So a big one would be um, maybe they were um, sucking their thumb when they were an infant and now they're seven years old and they're in the hospital again with spina bifida, and they start sucking their thumb again. So it's something that makes them feel comfortable regressing back. We could see some aggression, so aggressive behaviors or irritability. 
Um, we want to make sure that we have activities that are appropriate for their developmental age to keep them occupied. Remember that they're still growing and learning. Um, so how can we expose them to things, you know, even though they're kind of confined to the bed or have limited mobility um, and, and being in the hospital? Um, meds to think about. There's not a whole lot to talk about with meds. Like I said, folic acid is really important for childbearing women. Um, you know, when they're at risk for having a child, whether it's planned or unplanned, folic acid is what's going to be the supplement that will help prevent spina bifida. Because there could be bladder issues with incontinence, and they might have some um, urinary um, urgency and spasms, there are drugs that we can give um, to help with those called antispasmodics. And an example of an antispasmodic is oxybutynin, O-X-Y-B-U-T-Y-N-I-N. And then because they can have bladder issues, um, sometimes they have just incontinence with the bladder or they might have problems with the motility of their bladder. I'm sorry. They can also have um, GI issues, bowel issues. So sometimes they can have bowel incontinence, so being incontinent of stool, or sometimes because the GI motility slows, we see problems where they're constipated. So we might see laxatives ordered for patients who have spina bifida. Increasing fluid intake would help with um, constipation as well. Okay, so now let's kind of transition over into spinal cord injury. So we're going to see a lot of things connect here. Um, so one of the things that I really like showing, um, I'll show you a picture in class, is the level of the spinal cord injury. That's something that we have to think about. If someone, someone is coming in with an SCI, a spinal cord injury, my first thought is, what level is it at? Because that affects, you know, the complications that I'm going to see. So the higher that spinal cord injury is, the worse the possible outcome, because they could be quadriplegic, they could have breathing issues. It, it might, it's not going to look good. So the lower that spinal cord injury is, then kind of the less severe the complication, um, typically. The other thing that you have to think about is they have complete and incomplete spinal cord injuries. So if it's completely severed, then that tells me like, oh, this outcome may not be quite as good versus it's, if it's an incomplete, it's still intact somewhat, then they might be able to go to surgery and, and fix this. Um, so with spinal cord injury, concepts, of course, it's related to mobility. Another big concept, sensory perception is affected with spinal cord injuries and elimination. So we see a lot of crossover with spina bifida and spinal cord injury having a lot of sim similarities. So there's three big complications that I want you to know with spinal cord injury. The first of them is spinal shock. So spinal shock is the body's initial response to injury. So this, this is something that'll happen right away. Um, so the body's kind of, it's just in shock mode. Um, you know, they could lose, um, right when that injury occurs, they could lose their reflexes, their reflexes or those could diminish, which can kind of cause some other complications. So a spinal shock, you have to associate this with the autonomic nervous system. Remember, when you hear autonomic nervous system, it's automatic. So it's controlling all of those bodily processes that happen without us controlling it. So things like breathing, the heartbeat, the digestive processes, those happen automatically. So they're a part of the autonomic nervous system. If you can remember back from AMP or patho, this nervous system is divided into sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. 
So during spinal shock, the patient loses control of this system. So their blood pressure starts going down. Um, it's caused by a disruption of these sympathetic fibers. Their heart rate's going down. They can develop hypothermia, so they can't regulate their temperature. Um, and then we could also see problems with their bowel. So they could develop a hypotonic bowel, as well as a neurogenic bladder, where they can't control their bladder. So now this is, like I said, it's this initial response by the body to a spinal cord injury. And usually as that injury heals, then they regain control of some things. Um, so they might lose control of their bladder or bowel, uh, but depending on the, the level and the severity of the injury, there is a chance that after this spinal shock wears off and things start to heal, they could gain back those reflexes. Now I did say that spinal shock involves low blood pressure, low heart rate. So that's something you want to make sure you're observing closely in a patient with spinal cord injury. If a systolic blood pressure drops to 90 or below, then we require, that patient requires treatment. So expect if that systolic blood pressure drops to 90 or below that you are going to be doing things to help bring back that blood pressure. And think for a minute, why would that be a concern? Because on someone else, like my blood pressure actually usually runs in the low 90s and people aren't freaking out. I'm not on medication to help increase it. Why would it be bad for this patient who has a spinal cord injury to have a systolic blood pressure drop below 90? Well, the decreased perfusion to the spinal cord. They just had a spinal cord injury. It needs to heal. It needs to have good perfusion. So that's why we want to maintain that systolic blood pressure above 90. So we would expect that we would do some interventions. Maybe we give them some fluids or there's medications that belong to a class called vasopressors that can help increase that blood pressure and heart rate. And we'll talk more about vasopressors and Nursing 311 with, um, when we talk about perfusion. So the other complication that can happen with a spinal cord injury is neurogenic shock. This can occur within 24 hours of injury, especially in injuries above T6, T meaning thoracic, the thoracic level. So with neurogenic shock, so we might notice this within 24 hours of injury, this involves a low blood pressure, low, low pulse, low SpO2. So again, we're watching for that blood pressure if it drops below 90, we're getting concerned. If the SpO2 drops below 95, we're getting concerned. And this neurogenic shock can occur because of, because of a disruption between the upper and lower motor neurons. They're not talking to one another. So in order for me to maintain that blood pressure and pulse and SpO2, we're going to do things like I stated before with the spinal shock, maintaining hydration, giving IV fluids, giving vasopressors to increase blood pressure and heart rate, um, giving oxygen, there's a good table um, in the Iggy book for your, your med surge that talks about things to do with neurogenic shock and how to respond. So, and then the third complication that you should know with spinal cord injury is autonomic dysreflexia. This can occur during the recovery of a high level spinal cord injury, and this is life threatening. So, this is a sudden, massive, uninhibited reflex sympathetic discharge caused by noxious visceral or cutaneous stimuli. So let me break that down a little bit. 
So what's happening here is, you know, there's something on, um, you know, something going on in the patient's body or exterior that is causing the patient to release epinephrine and norepinephrine. And when those are released, their blood pressure is going up, their heart rate's going up. So this has the opposite effect of the spinal and neurogenic shock. Autonomic dysreflexia, our main concern is their um, having a hypertensive crisis, and that could lead to a stroke or organ failure. So in the med surgery book, there's other good um, boxes for these. There's an assessment, you know, what you would assess during autonomic dysreflexia and interventions. So things that I would assess if, you know, and you want to, you know, knowing that this is going to happen in this recovery period, I want to be vigilant and looking that for this autonomic dysreflexia. They could have a sudden significant rise in systolic and diastolic blood pressure accompanied by bradycardia. I'm sorry, before I stated their heart rate goes up. So their blood pressure goes up, but the heart rate goes down. So that would be a red flag if you notice that. They could start sweating all over, profuse sweating, um, goosebumps, flushing, blurred vision, nasal congestion. So they could see spots in their visual field. Um, onset of a sudden severe throbbing headache, flushing above the level of the lesion while pale skin below the level of the lesion, and a feeling of apprehension. So this would all be red flags for the autonomic dysreflexia. If I saw one of those red flags, the priority, the first thing you want to do is you want to put the patient up in the bed. So sit the head of the bed up because this is going to help reduce that blood pressure. So you don't have a bunch of blood rushing to the heart, which is going to cause it to pound and beat even harder, more pressure. By raising the head of the bed, we prevent that. So that would be our priority. Then I want to try to figure out, well, what's causing this? What could be some of that noxious stimuli um, that's causing it? Some common things that are going to cause this are bladder distension or bowel distension, maybe they're constipated, or they, they need to empty their bladder and we just have to straight cath them to get rid of it. Or maybe we give them a laxative to get the stool out. Um, making sure that their pain is well managed because that could cause this. Making sure that their room is at a good temperature um, and just maintaining, you know, make sure you continue to watch their vital signs. So depending on whatever the cause is, that'll depend on what our intervention is. And like I said, there's a good box that goes over this. Um, and pretty much those are the big things is that they have urinary retention. We, you know, catheterize them and drain it, or they have um, constipation or bowel impaction. And we can end up, you know, disimpacting the patient or getting, giving them a laxative of some sort to get rid of it. And then with the blood pressure to help maintain a good blood pressure, um, we want to make sure that we're assessing that closely, you know, more frequently during this period and then giving them medications to help bring that down as well. So those are things you could do beyond just raising the head of the bed. That's the immediate thing we could do. Okay, so I think that's pretty much it for spinal cord injury. So the three things you want to make sure you know and read about in the book, spinal shock, neurogenic shock, and autonomic dysreflexia. And then just know too, I didn't, I don't think I stated this before, but you know, if I hear someone's coming in with a spinal cord injury, you know, no matter, you know, the first time I lay eyes on them and throughout all of my assessments is you're always watching airway breathing circulation. So it goes back to, you know, what, what level of injury is that spinal cord 
um, what level on the spinal cord is the injury and just making sure that I watch the airway breathing circulation, your ABCs and watching out for those different types of shock.